Hey everybody, Jason Klom here. Um, thank you for your patience. I know it's been a couple weeks since an episode came out, um, but uh, this one, as you can probably imagine when I tell you, it, tell you who it is, uh, is very exciting for me. I'm sure I've mentioned several times um, on the podcast that my favorite movie of all time is Blazing Saddles. That is why uh, I was, uh, I don't use this word because I think it's a silly word, but I was jazzed. I was super jazzed that Andrew Bergman wanted to come on. Um, yeah, he, he created the film. Uh, it started out as a novella, and uh, I don't think I knew that part. Uh, and uh, he co-wrote uh, the, you know, the final draft with Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor and that whole group. Um, and, uh, yeah, even thinking about it, I'm, I'm getting chills. So, um, I'm just going to leave it at that. No point for clips. There's really no vinyl involved. Does not matter. Um, this episode is just about, uh, how one of, uh, our great screenwriters wrote one of my favorite films. Thanks so much and, uh, enjoy the show. Also keep your eyes out for, uh, the Honeymoon in Vegas musical and, uh, a film by Alan Stewart Eisner, which is a film that they are uh, trying to finance right now, a film that Andrew just wrote. And, uh, I'll also put a link to this on the website, um, but his book, We Are in the Money, uh, Depression America and its Films, uh, is, uh, you can still buy that, so, uh, still in print. My father was a newspaper man who wrote comedy material on the side, uh-huh. and he wrote comedy material for Victor Borger. Oh, wow. the first. It was the first Broadway show I ever saw. It was his, his one-man show. That's great. And and um, I don't think I've ever heard him. He was stupendous. Oh, yeah. Funny. Yeah. I mean, he had actually the most unbelievable timing I've ever heard. In fact, years later, I, I woke with, with um, George Burns, and we wound up talking about Borger. And, and wow. Burns said that, except for Jack Benny, he thought Borger had the best timing of anybody he ever saw. That's amazing. I mean, he really could milk a joke. Sure. Like, an, for an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> right. So he was, I mean, he definitely was, I have to say that he was an influence just as a performer, mm-hmm. um, as, a, as a refugee, because my father was a refugee, too. Oh, okay. Um, just in a, in a, in the whole sense, he was a, he was a big influence, but, but he was incredibly funny, incredibly funny man. Right, and then Bob and Ray were huge influences. I'm talking about from from an early early age. Right, right. We're actually going to be discussing a Bob and Ray album uh, this weekend with uh, Phil, oh really? Yeah, with Phil Proctor from the Firesign Theater. He he picked uh, Bob and Ray, so I found something that I thought would work. I picked their Broadway show. Oh, they were geniuses. Yeah, oh, amazing stuff. I mean, I, I knew Bob pretty well because again, my father had worked with him, and, uh-huh. and uh, they were amazing. I mean, they were they would I I. I sat and watched them do their show. They had a 15-minute show every night on, on WCBS radio. Mm-hmm. And they would just sit there and do it. You know, they yeah. had no, no notes. They just sat down with a sound effects guy and, you know, bing, bing, bing. They just did it. What was it like growing up around so much comedy? Um, well, I don't know. I don't know what it would be like not to grow up around it. You sure. Know, I mean, we, we, my father was a newspaper so we had no money. Right. Um, but it was it was it was amazing being exposed to those guys for sure. I I I, I just can't I can't imagine that kind. Of, I mean, I grew up in upstate New York, so I grew up sort where? of uh, Oneonta, near Oneonta. If you have right. any idea where that is, um, near Cooperstown. I do. I oh, do. Okay. oh, you do. Okay. I mean, I'm in New York. I went to school in Binghamton. So oh, that's right. No, I did just I'm, see that. That's I'm an upstate boy. That's not know. too far. 
Um, so, you know, it's kind of, uh, I guess, somewhat sheltered. I mean, my parents gave me plenty of culture, but not growing up around people who are actually making the culture. I think that's yeah. that's integral, I think, to being quite good at what you do. So eventually I had to move to a city. Um, when did you, I mean, were you always, was your goal always comedy writing? I mean, I know no, you've got a history. No, my goal was, uh, I had no goal. Mm-hmm. That sounds goal, right for a comedy my writer. Goal, my goal was survival. Yeah. My goal was 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 then um, not to go to Vietnam. That was a goal. Sure. Um, so I wound up getting a PhD in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I I actually I was I was a history student. I thought I wound up advising some president. I mean, I yeah. I, I always thought it was funny, but I never thought I'd do it for a living. That seemed right. Amazing. So what? What originally, I mean, I, obviously, if you obviously Blazing Saddles uh, has, uh, you know, it's historical in its own way, even despite being completely, you know, breaking the fourth wall and bringing it into 1974. But what, I mean, what as a, was there something funny about history that brought you into comedy writing, or did you happen to just write something and then it struck you that you were good at comedy? Um, I mean, I was always funny mm-hmm. as a kid. And I loved history. I mean, and and you know, I had this I, this blazing saddles idea for years. Yeah. Uh, just that that concept of of a a seventies black guy in in the old west. Yeah. Of just putting a trap brown or Stokely Carmichael on a horse, and you know, in Kansas. Right. Um, and actually, a guy I knew, and an old friend of mine from college, found a letter I'd written to him in like nineteen sixty seven. I was in graduate school in Madison, describing the entrance, you know, of oh Mark into into Dodge City on on that horse. You know, that that was that was the concept around which I built the whole the whole idea. Just that amazing. image of a guy who looks like a Brown on a Palomino riding into town. Holy cow! Uh, and you know, that was like my my one high concept idea right. uh, in my life. Mm-hmm. But it, it was just irresistible. Yep. So I wrote the script around that premise and, and and it became this this quite by serendipity the way things happened became this this historical phenomenon you know was it how long after you know the phd was this it wasn't so long i mean i wrote this thing in in 71 mm-hmm. the, the, the story wow okay um called tex x about uh-huh. the sheriff it was a ninety-page novella, and then, then uh, it, you know, it, it, it was shopped around. Actually, the first person I sent that story to was Cleveland Little, who I'd seen a show called Scuba Duba. I said, "Boy, he'd be great." And you know, awesome. his manager read it, says, "Not for Cleveland." Mm. Blah blah blah. <laughs> um, he, he never read it, of course. Right. Um, and then the, Alan Arkin read the stories that I wanted to direct. This I wrote the first draft, and he was going to direct it, and James Earl Jones was going to play the sheriff. And then that fell through, uh-huh. and then they looked around, and then and they got uh, Mel. And Mel said, I love this. I just wanted it to be a parody of all Westerns. Mine wasn't. Mine was like a Paul Bunyan story about a black guy. It was much more mythic. It wasn't okay. a takeoff of all Westerns. Okay. Um, Were you but, comfortable? Hey, I was 26. What the hell? Well, let's, let's right. Go, you know? Were you comfortable with that? I mean, once they threw you, I mean, first, I mean, I guess, I mean, I've heard people talk about it before. It's you're you're lucky, I suppose, to still stick around on your own script once you sell it. But I mean, was it? How, what was that that room like? I mean, it's <laughs> that room was pretty great. I mean, that room was 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 funnier than the movie actually. Yeah. Um, 
No, it, it was it was it was great because Mel want, wanted me there, and I think you know because Mel was sort of on the outs then also. You know, he wasn't he wasn't like the king of Hollywood at that point. He had done right. some movies, and and they both sort of flopped. So we were, we were all we were all hungry, which is one reason for the movie's success. We were willing to try anything because yeah. nobody had anything to lose. Right, certainly not me. Mm-hmm. Mel had nothing to lose at that point. Richie Pryor was sort of nowhere at that point, and Norman. Right. You know, Norman was, was was sort of like me a neophyte. Yeah. Um, so sort of, you know, what the fuck? I, I have to wonder if the environment is the same now, where if three people, while talented, like you say, are on the outs, if they could make a film. No, no, they, this... yeah, you could make a film for about you know twenty thousand dollars. Sure. And shoot, it in, and shoot it in your backyard. That is true. I, I just wonder if people would react the same way to the same kind of content because people get way too sensitive to language nowadays, despite the fact that it's got a purpose in this film. Oh, you know, absolutely. Now, this is this is uh, this would never happen today. Yeah. That you would have a first of all, you wouldn't have a studio backing anything remotely like this. Right. Right. Nothing involving risk would be would be backed by a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, financial risk, yes, but not not. Not an intellectual risk. Sure. Um, no, it's just it was it was it was a flyer. Was you know, it... but this is the early seventies. People took a lot of flyers. Plus, they could afford to take them. I mean, you know, the, you know, the movie cost nothing. Right. Know? Right. Were you were you there for rewrites at all on the script as well? Yeah. Shoot, oh so? yeah. I mean, we, we we went out to LA before we started shooting. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be on the set because it was a writers guild strike that started basically the oh. day we started shooting the movie. Jesus. Okay. Seventy three. So I was never on the set. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we were certainly out there for casting and and and, and things. Right. Um, it was basically me and Norman and Mel at that point. Uh-huh. Richie was had moved on. I've heard I've I've heard stories of uh, and I again I don't know how exaggerated they are of like supposedly Mel wrote a lot of Bart's lines and Richard Pryor wrote a lot of Mongo's lines like that's a complete myth. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was it just more of a was it more of a group effort or how? Uh, what, it was, was it? totally a group effort. Yeah. I mean that's the way those things are. Yeah. I mean it's like a game of telephone. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're in the room and you and you sort of don't know who will what, right. which is which is in the is the best of all possible worlds. I mean, I know specific lines that I wrote. Sure. I know specific visuals that I suggested. Mm-hmm. But line by line, it just, you know, it, it goes around the room, and somebody says, what if it's this, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, what if it's, you're jumping around like a bunch of faggots? Or, and, right. And somebody says, wouldn't Kansas City faggots be even more, you know? <laughs> right, right. And that's how it happens, you know? Um was there a sense, and I hate, I know it's impossible. But this whole thing, I mean, I think Mel began to say, oh, that, that Richie did all the Mongo jokes. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know. Yeah, I mean, it just, you I know. Mean, I it's so. I mean, it's just, sure. Richie's a genius. You know, he, of course. He doesn't even describe any jokes to him. The thing I know he, he came up with was holding the gun to his own neck. Oh, God. It's just, and that's so. That I'm pretty sure was Richie. That's just amazing all around. That was fabulous, yeah. I, I, there's, I, I mean, there's not a minute wasted in this film, but I don't know how uh, it's it's always blown me away that that a film of you know uh, that feels the way this film feels can be socially as important it is. Of course, it didn't start some movement, but that doesn't matter. It obviously says a whole lot about a point in American history and just about racism and ignorance in general. Did you oh, feel you that? Know, it's like no, 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 Sheriff Bart. No, no, Obama. 
you know. Right. Yeah. Um, it's. It's. I. I know people have drawn that that same comparison. Did. Well, it's true. Could you? Do you? Could you feel it when you were writing it? What did it no, feel socially not. important? It just felt like a no, funny movie. No, I wrote it because it was. It was. You know, nineteen seventy-one. I thought, well, this. I mean, everything was sort of had social relevance. Sure. You know, but in your life, it was such a politicized era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is going to be a political statement. This. It is what it is. Sure. It's. it's I'm moving this myth into the old west. Right. So that by itself is political. So just but did we say it's going to be a political statement? No. Sure. Of course. Why it be? Was funny. Right. You know? And I guess, and I guess, just drawing from that, and drawing from the fact that you know history, and that everybody knows the basic history, uh, it, I guess, it just came with it naturally that you know the language would have to be there. The, 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 the yeah, it's cut. a very, very dense movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I've only been successful. You really had to see it like three times to begin to start to get all the jokes. For because sure, they're so layered one on top of the other. And it is, and I know it's a cliche to say this, but I do see something new every time, or I feel something different every. The, the older it's I get, the a lot more... in there, you yeah. know. You get a bunch of really, you know, incredibly hungry, smart people, right. you know, trying to tap tap themselves, and it, it, it and it shows, mm-hmm. you know? and a lot of great. I mean, Cleveland never nearly got the credit he deserved. I mean that is some performance. I mean it's it's genius, and I'm I'm always shocked that there was not more for him past that. You know that he didn't have the career that you would expect after watching that film. Well, he was a, he was black. Yeah. This is 1974. You know. Right. Um, did you uh, so uh, then? I guess what, what's it like seeing your first film on on the big screen? I mean, how I, I, I you know I can't imagine. It was numbing. I mean, I just it was it was just a shock. Yeah. Um, and I first screened it for like family and friends, which is always the worst thing to do because <laughs> they they don't laugh at anything and they're terrified. Right. I right. can't know critics. It was a critic screening the first time I saw it. Uh huh. Which is really death because they they just they just can't laugh. They don't like to laugh. Right. Uh, right. They don't know yet that it's funny. Mm-hmm. Not, nobody's told them it's funny yet. <laughs> right. Um, but then I saw it at a, at a public screening the same night. And people went completely batshit. And I said, well, maybe we got something here, you know. That's insane. Do, do you, uh, a, did you draw at all from a specific knowledge of history? Is there something, speci- uh, do you have a specialty as far as your as history is concerned? Or is it just American history? Or is it a specific type? My specialty was, was um, uh, 20th century social intellectual history. Interesting. Really tedious. <laughs> way to describe what it was but that's what it was yeah. I wrote a book about, about American movies during the 30s uh-huh. and the depression which is actually still in print amazingly enough the only thing I ever wrote that's still in print and the only book still in print was my PhD dissertation on American movies in the 30s but that, that's that that's what sort of got me off what's the title of the book? it's called We Are the Money still in print I will make sure and put a link to that on the oh, website yeah, absolutely I had another 15 cents to my there book. you go <laughs> Um, so I guess then, because uh, the 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 obvious question was, you know, did did you have any particular interest in in the West? But I guess it was just you did, but from a storytelling perspective. I had a yeah, exactly. I had an interest in the myth of the West. Yeah. Um, is there? Have you ever made available the original ninety page novella? Um, I have it. I found it. It's it, it's it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, but I really—I I just discovered it in like a pile of junk. Wow! You know? 
and 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 actually found it because they do they're doing this American experience thing on Mel. Mm -hmm. They said do you have a do you have that? So I just I, I had to uh, um, fax just the title page. Yeah. So there actually was such a thing. Yeah. You know, my little typescript, and it's it's like on a carbon. I mean, it's really like like holy cow. You know, pre Gutenberg. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> um, I just know there are a lot of people out there like myself who are obsessed who would just kill to see that in print that's that despite not i know it's obviously not going to be nearly the same thing as the film although maybe i'm wrong i could be wrong i don't know how far off no it is. it's it's very western and colloquial yeah you know it's 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 like a west it's like a poor bunion story it's like a western mythic thing about this 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 guy getting this telegram about this guy text x they think what is it ECKX what is this you know is it supposed to be an alchemist uh -huh. I've heard no TexX coming in you know who is this guy um, and he rides in town and they all just just crap and and the original draft there was a, a real interracial romance mm -hmm. which was sort of really off the bounds I thought that, that, that the sheriff was going to have a thing with uh, the head of the railroad's daughter who would be like Candace Bergen or somebody at that time uh -huh. and I thought Mel's brilliance was to make the love object sort of a joke. Right. You know, Lily von Stupp. <laughs> but the fact is, they had a thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Oh, my, I, she was nuts about him. Right. She had an interracial romance, but people were too busy laughing to take it seriously. But guess what? Do you... Have you seen... I mean, what's it like then to see the influence that this movie has had on other films, clearly? I mean, there's not a lot of people have succeeded with good comedy westerns. People are still trying, but... I mean, I mean some of the influences were less than salutary, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. there's a lot of kind of gross-ad movies that it spawned. Sure. And we weren't looking for that. We were just looking to do things that had never been done before. Right. Um, but you know the law of unintended consequences, um, particularly if it was if a movie had bombed, then there would have been all those movies. Right. Um, fortunately and unfortunately, it, it, it succeeded. I see a lot of movies in which it, the gross act was was the end intention. Right. For us, that campfire scene was just about, well. Here's 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 the campfire you never saw before. Yeah. But yeah. It's so it's so steeped in in you know John Ford. Chuck Wagon movies, you right, know. Right, right. And you have a guy like Slim, who was such a genius. Oh, God. Who just sells it completely, mm -hmm. you know. Was it, uh, I, I, from what I understand, there uh, there were a bunch of casting changes for Gene Wilder's part, correct? Well, our dream originally was Johnny Carson to play that part. Oh, that would have been interesting. That would have been great. That was our. We had two days in which he was reading it. Mm -hmm. We were in LA and we, 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 we said, Oh my God, can you imagine? Yeah. And then he said, And then he was just too scared. He said, I'm not an actor. I can't do this. And we were just crushed. Yeah. yeah. And then they cast Dan Daly, who was too old. And they cast Gig Young, who actually passed out in an alcoholic coma the first day of shooting. Oh my God. So Gene just, just did it as a favor. Yeah. You know, literally, they did it you know, the meter was already running, and Gene just did him as a favor. Which a favor in exchange for Mel directing Young Frankenstein. So it worked out great for everybody. Right. I, no one, in no one, I don't think, in their right mind ever would have pegged Gene Wilder to work never, in that part. Never, never, never. It was just, it said, what? 
Yeah. It was a washed up cowpuck, but he was, he, was, he was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, every I, in my mind, I'm assuming my, my brain would have immediately gone to Leo Bloom or even his little character in uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, no, no. It, it just worked because his age was closer to Cleveland's. Right. And, and, and you really, you know, the thing that made the movie work ultimately was that you really believe these guys love each other. Yeah. You know, you know at the basis of all the all the hilarity and the farting and the lily line strip sure you really believe these guys have a, have have crossed that that racial divide and and that's what makes it work and while it's not the first uh film to have that kind of buddy quality i think that is one of the really positive uh results of movies like this especially this movie uh, you know, buddy comedies are are the norm, I guess, to make you know to make your money back nowadays. But they owe a lot to the chemistry between those two guys. Well, they were they were, they was they were just both exquisite. You know, they really were genuine love between two outcasts. Yeah, you know? they really were. And I, I mean, you know, I, I mean, Cleveland was as, as lovable a human being as you could find. He was just a terrific person. So it was it was. Uh, easily come by um what I, I always like to ask my guests about is uh as far as comedy did they ever make friends over comedy like listening to albums together or uh you know just going to shows or just sitting around the tv together uh, that that was my experience so i'm always interested to know if if people have made friends through comedy or by experiencing comedy no did i make new friends listening to comedy albums no no I certainly listened to them. I mean, you know, back in the 60s, you know, there's Nichols and May albums and the New Art albums and yeah. the Mort Sorrow albums and the Shelley Berman. I mean, they, they were gold. Yeah. I mean, I would listen to them over and over and over again. Was it more of a personal experience for you, though, just yeah, sitting there with totally. headphones and the speakers? Yeah, yeah. not headphones. No. It just... Was it uh, was it an escape for you simply, or looking back, was it, it was just it learning? Killed me. I mean, yeah. I, my old man liked him also. I mean, yeah. um, the, the soul albums were great, and 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 those albums really hold up. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I mean, the new heart stuff is is paralyzing, amazing, and and, and I don't think there's anything funnier than the Nichols and May uh, doctors. Oh God. I mean that's just that's just amazing. Yeah. Do you at all? I mean it, that's it's something that doesn't happen anymore. Really, people aren't making no, comedy albums. You know, uh, I miss it. So I'm assuming you must. Do you miss that that part of comedy when all comedy seems to be online now? It seems to be at your fingertips constantly. It seems more fleeting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It seems more like today's newspapers. It doesn't. I mean that's. I mean, the, the great thing about the internet is how accessible it is. Sure. The awful thing is how transitory it is. It's yeah. just, it's all, it's all kind of smoke. Yeah. Um, I hate... And I, I don't think there's anything you can do about it, but I think everybody's attention spans are so splintered into a million pieces now. I don't think there's a way to, to, to get around that. Right. Um... It, it it seems more elusive, but there's still funny stuff. For sure, there's still some very funny people running around. It feels harder to find that stuff, but maybe that's because there's just. It too feels much harder to pin it down. Yeah, and say this is this. I'm mm. going to play this for you now. Right, you know? right. Because nobody can sit down anymore because there's 50 other things going on. Right. You I can. Mean, s- if, if, if 10 people are sitting down in a room. 
they're sitting down holding phones and iPads at right. the same time. Yeah. So they're, they're not, you know. That's a go thing. To the theater in New York, and, and as the lights are going down, people are just frantically still tapping their phones for oh. the last rays of information or non-information and bullshit from somewhere else. Yeah, that's... I mean, I think that's the problem. The idea of sitting around listening to a record yeah. is inconceivable now because you, you don't sit down and do anything. Yeah, people don't talk about that much, and we haven't talked about it much on the podcast, that there were party albums that, you know... Oh, for sure. You know, they don't do... We don't do that anymore. I would like to, but you, I know that, again, like what they you're can't. talking about, people would be bored. There were party albums, there were these old kind of dirty albums, there were these, you know, yep. these risque albums, there were... There was, the Red Fox albums with Rusty Warren. Yes. Blue albums, you know, you sit down and you listen to them. Right, right. The problem now is, it's not the albums, it's the sitting down is inconceivable. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how that happened or when, but it seemed to happen. It started happening <laughs> when these fucking computers started taking over. Um... I do not want to keep you. I know you. You said you had about a half an hour. Um, right. I wanted to. I'm giving you, you my best stuff. Here. You. This is great. You have no idea. <laughs> I. I am genuinely honored to speak with you, and I. I know I'm just. I'm going to regret that I forgot about a million things to ask you about. Um, well, you know, you know, like, I, well, I appreciate that, and I definitely yeah. will. Um, I want to make sure, for one, that if there's anything out there, like we, we, the book, is there anything out there that uh, you would like me to, you know, to to pitch to people, just to, or, or just to plug to people, anything, anywhere people can find you if you're online or just, you know, I mean, obviously there's we've we've got Blazing Saddles, we've got Fletch, we've got Soap Dish, um, you know, is there anything else that you'd like people to keep an eye out there, something upcoming maybe? They can keep an eye out for the the musical version of Honeymoon in Vegas, which is oh. opening this this fall at the Paper Mill Playhouse and then to Broadway. Wow. That's um, amazing. Which has been a long time in the coming, but mm-hmm. it's, it's quite wonderful. Yeah. Is there... I'm doing a, a movie, you know, which we're trying to raise the money for in our new model of how you make movies now. Right. A script I wrote called A Film by Alan Stewart Eisner, uh-huh. which I think is... is as funny as anything I ever wrote. We have, uh, you know, Robin Williams and Isla Fisher and Oliver Cooper and Jesus, Audrey McDonald and Rob Hine already committed to. So wow, all right, it that's, should be all fun for the whole family. That's is that, but that's right now. You're just looking for independent financing. You're not doing you any bet. crazy online stuff. Okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> um, if any of your listeners want to contribute and get on the ground floor. The funniest movie of the 21st century. They can they have that opportunity. All right. Was a film by Alan Stewart Eisner. <laughs> that's that's that sounds amazing. Do you, do you is there? Uh, this would all be pure speculation. There's always rumors that Mel is going to go make a, another musical of one of his films. Is there any possibility that Blazing Saddles is going to become a musical? I, I, I certainly a possibility. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. He's been talking to me about it. <laughs> I guess he wouldn't technically have to, but still, it would be. No, he does. Does he? Have does he? To, yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So good. Well, that's not the underlying rights. Oh, okay. So Even better. He would have to. Even but better. But I mean, it's whatever. Well, I wish him well. I love him dearly. I really do. Well, I, th- it, was a, it was a happy relationship with him, and then we're still buddies. So. Well, and I mean, you can tell that's another thing about this film is it obviously wasn't put together by a bunch of angry, cynical people. It was. Oh no, no, no! We were, we were, we, we just wanted to be funny. 
and it, it's just it's so it's so loving obviously M- mel had his his agenda of a loving homage to the western which started off a whole you know started off this whole i mean it, it, it sparked off the parody or the spoof but you know that's a lot of people sort of lost the way and didn't quite get what he was trying to do with his with this movie which is again an homage um there's very few people who are keeping that alive nowadays that type of film but uh again also that just filled with really loving relationships and also just like, like oh yeah a, well, it was it was a you know miraculous experience for all of us there's no question um, and this film just means a lot to me, and uh, oh, I just want to thank you for making it. I, I really want to thank you for it. And uh, I, again, I will say on behalf of every Blazing Saddles fan, I really hope that at some point Tex X becomes something we can all read because that would be amazing. That would be just well, that's phenomenal. Well, that certainly was an unknown possibility. Um, I want to thank you again. For this. Okay, Jason, thank you. And uh, everybody, please just make sure, like I said, uh, I'll put something at the beginning of the, of the podcast about your book and everything. Um, but again, thank you so much, and uh, have a wonderful day, okay? Bye, thanks. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening, and have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, rate us highly, and write your reviews. You can follow us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl and Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl. The only thing that kept me afloat was holding me coconut.